Pastor Rodney Fry, Baptist pastor, quoted a USA Today article. Some of you will understand this perhaps at a very deeper level than others, but the article said, did you know that every second people take 591 photographs? That's 5.1 million every day. Why do we know that? Well, we take 3 billion photographs just during the November-December holiday season. Folks, did you have more than 3 billion? That's a lot of photos, they, they said. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, so that would be a big book, wouldn't it? Three billion photos during the holiday season is a lot of words. Why do we do that, the article asked. Well, Fry commented, spend all that money on all those photographs to augment our memory, to make it better, so that we can remember. We human beings need all the crutches we can get to augment our memory. The Bible makes an interesting statement, Proverbs 10, 7, says the memory of the righteous will be a blessing. So Fry says the memory of the righteous will be a blessing because they will be remembering good things. And if you store good things in your mind, that's going to be a great blessing to you. So today, we observe one of the two ordinances Christ gave His church. Well, the first was baptism that we got to see not terribly long ago. And now, the Lord's Supper. This is a memorial service meant to bring blessing into our memories and into our lives. Now, we're going to start off this look at the Lord's Supper with a word that you may not associate with communion at all. It is the word Hosanna. Uh, we know, if you know your Bible well, and... Uh, Angel, Miss Angel showed us and helped us remember the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we now call Palm Sunday. In the calendar of the church year, today is Palm Sunday. But before this day is through, I hope that you will come to realize that word Hosanna has an equally precious meaning. It wasn't spoken, but a special meaning in what we will do when we observe the Supper of our Lord today. The Lord's Supper. So we're going to jump into two different passages in Matthew today and that will be our, our basis for our, our message. So if you would, stand for the reading of the Word of God. And we're going to begin with what we're used to with Hosanna. Matthew 21, 1-11. Hear the Word of the Lord. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill that which was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, seeing your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, 
and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to the disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. You may be seen. Today we're going to take a deeper look at the triumphal entry. Palm Sunday than we usually do. And as we will do, we will understand something very important, crucially important for us here today. This jubilant, shouting crowd was in fact mistaken about the purpose of Christ. When you look at that passage we were looking at when we first opened up, this crowd excited and shouting and taking their cloaks off and throwing branches down we're mistaken. Now, what is known today as the triumphal entry of Jesus, and I need you to listen carefully, 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 okay? This moment in time, the triumphal entry of Jesus pointed to both truth and an important mistake. We're going to take a look at both. We're going to begin, first let's look at, focus on the truth. Focusing on the truth. Now, Matthew quoted Zechariah 9.9. What the prophet promised, it was Zechariah 9.9. But Matthew didn't quote the entire prophecy and promise, so I'm going to read it for you. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when the crowds are crying out, and by the way, the crowds are quoting one of the passages we read today in our responsive reading, Psalm 18. When they're quoting it, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they were right to do so. Jesus was coming to answer the cry. Hosanna. And Hosanna is a cry. The phrase does not mean hallelujah. It does not mean praise the Lord. It is literally a plea for the Lord to save. Hosanna, this is interesting because it doesn't normally happen this way. We transliterate words all the time. Hallelujah. Is, is a translated, is a transliterated form of how 
Yeah, hallelujah. And it means pray, you praise the Lord. The Greek word that is in your text today, Hosanna, is a transliterated word, actually words, from Psalm 118. And the literal translation is, save us, please. Save us. The blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord indicated at that moment, at that moment, this crowd believed that Jesus Christ would save them. That was the truth. They believed that Jesus Christ would save them. And they were right to call Him the Son of David. And they were right to call out, Save us! Because He was the one who was coming to save. So there's truth in what they said. There's truth in what they did. But folks, secondly, now let us focus on the mistake. And it is an important one. We're going to do so through two observations. Officials in Israel and around the world use donkeys not for military processions. The text is not a triumphal entry, as in the sense of a Roman triumph where the king comes riding, the emperor comes riding into the city, we won. One of the times Julius Caesar rode in after victory, we are told by historians of the day that he rode in on a prancing stallion. But that's not what happens here. Instead, this is not a king coming to wage battle. Again, from Zechariah, your king comes to you righteous, bringing salvation, and gentle. What they wanted to be saved from was Rome. What they wanted was for Jesus to come and overthrow that pagan empire and set up for the kingdom the throne of David. They wanted victory. They wanted overwhelming victory. That's not what happened. They didn't realize what was actually happening wasn't a reception of a meek and peaceful king. Larry Richards, and I want to recommend, if if you would like a good devotional book, uh, Larry Richards has written the 365-day devotional commentary. So he doesn't just look at a passage and come up with a, ah, he actually deals with the passage. It's a wonderful book. And he said, while the triumphal entry did fulfill prophecy, it also showed that even the many who had come to believe in Jesus accepted on their terms, not His. They believed that they, what they wanted to believe about Him, that He would free them from Rome and set up God's kingdom on earth. 
Now, how do I know they were wrong in what they believed? We want this just to be just jubilation, don't we? We want them to be recognized. This is the king. How do I know they were wrong? I want to read a passage out of Luke for you. It's Luke 19, 41-44. And it describes what Jesus is doing as the crowd was growing and gathering momentum and getting everybody whipped up, throwing out their cloaks and palm branches. What was Jesus doing? Well, listen. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, Even you, if even you only had only known that on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. While the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus was weeping. And someone has said, if they had only paid attention, if this crowd had only taken one moment to look at this man they were calling king, the one who came in, the son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord, if they had just looked at him for a moment, they would have seen the tears. But they were caught up in themselves. In his commentary on Mark, R.C. Sproul made one of the most gut-wrenching comments I have ever heard in my life about the triumphal entry. He wrote, here is the supreme irony. In 586 B.C., Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple, leave the holy city, and ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And at the triumphal entry, the one whom the Scriptures define as the brightness of God's glory descended from Bethany and the Mount of Olives and entered the east gate of the holy city and went into the temple. He writes, do you see the irony in it? In 586 B.C., the glory of God left the temple, but when Jesus came, the glory of God came back. Yet no one understood that the king of glory was in their midst about to meet the destiny to which he was called or for which he was born. They just didn't see. They just did not see. And folks, people continue to misunderstand Jesus and why he did all he did. There are some that insist that Jesus was only one of history's great religious leaders. He was like Buddha. He was like Confucius. 
He was like Muhammad. He was just one of many. Some have declared that Jesus was wrong. Albert Schweitzer wrote, and there was a movement in the 19th century called the, the Search for the Historical Jesus. And they basically said, you need to strip away all of the miracles, all of the expectation of the coming of God in a GNU kingdom. Just get rid of it. Jesus was just a good guy. And Schweitzer tore apart their arguments and said they're just recreating Jesus in their own image. But before you clap and say, yay, Schweitzer, he also said that Jesus, everything Jesus said had to do with the coming of the kingdom. It was the big theological term, is eschatological, about the, the establishment of the kingdom of God. And Schweitzer said Jesus believed that in going to the cross and, and then within the resurrection, the kingdom of God would immediately happen. And then he said, and Jesus was wrong. And there are even those in the body of Christ who look at the atonement and look at the work of Christ on cross and say it promises a grand and glorious life beyond which the Bible actually professes or promises. So what does this have to do with us? We need clarity when we cry out Hosanna to our King. Whether in the initial act of salvation, Lord, save me. Or in an act when we're struggling with the battles of sin and we're being defeated and we cry out, Lord, save us. We need to understand we, we cannot afford to be mistaken like the crowd. These Passover pilgrims came on the, on the day of the tri triumphal entry and they missed the point. He wasn't coming back like a conquering Caesar. He wasn't coming in like a Lord about to throw off the enemy. But Grant Osborne has pointed out when he rode in on that donkey, he represented the suffering servant of the Lord in, in Isaiah 53. And said Jesus would become the Davidic Messiah on the cross, not on a battlefield. So when we cry out, save, please, it is not a call, Lord, overthrow all of my enemies. Get rid of everybody that stands against me and my people and my nation. It is not, save us, Lord, so we can have an easy life. Save, please, in its truest Sense is a recognition that every one of us are truly and certainly lost in our sin. It is something we cannot overcome ourselves. It is not, it's something we cannot fix. God, we need you through your Son to save us. Again, both initially and throughout our lives as we walk in the kingdom Save us whenever we move out of your way, out of your, reach into us. There's a concept in, in the Word of God uh, called sanctification, and it is an idea of this constant renewal. Lord, we need your help. 
to do what we cannot do ourselves. Now, fast forward. Days later, after this event, the disciples have joined together with Jesus to observe the Passover. And during that time, we can listen in and hear with our hearts and our ears and our minds Christ's own clarification on what he came to do. Jesus is telling his disciples what the crowd did not understand, what the crowd did not want. And frankly, folks, it's not what the disciples wanted either at first. You see, there's something that we need to know as we look at Jesus' relationship with the disciples through three years. Christ is clarifying what... It wasn't the first time they've heard it, I'm I'm trying to say. I know that I repeat myself sometimes, and I know that there are things that I say over and over again to you. Things like, get rid of your vocabulary, all I can do is pray. And the reason I repeat it, it's important that we understand it. The truth is, folks, the disciples were being taught all along the journey with Christ about what He was going to do. This wasn't their first encounter with this idea of death. Not at all. On numerous occasions, He pointed to the fact, I have come to pay the price. He said, I have come to give my life a ransom for many. In other words, I have come to pay the price necessary for people to come into the kingdom of God. And when they are arguing, who's the most important? Who's the best disciple of all? Jesus said, look, you don't understand power. My power isn't about lording it over the world. I've come to serve. I've come to serve. And so at the Lord's Supper, when He instituted this ordinance for His church, He made it as clear as He possibly could to His disciples that He indeed was about to die. And they couldn't stop it It was the plan of God. It was the will of God. He had come to die on their part. And he's telling them, this is my body given for you. This is my blood, which is the cost of the new covenant. They still didn't want to hear it and they were broken hearted. And and when the arrest was taking place, Peter woke up long enough to try to save Jesus by cutting off a guy's ear. Even his aim was off. Thankfully, Jesus healed the man and said, it's no more time for swords. Edwin Bloom has made a statement, for most people, death is their humiliation, but for Jesus, death was his means of entry into glory. So again, what what is this telling us? What do we need to understand? What do we need to hear? What do we need to know? Well, folks, When we come to the table of the Lord, all mistaken ideas should be laid aside. Anything that we hold on to that is not from the Word of God, we need to say goodbye to. 
And believe me, I know how easy it is to get caught up in mistaken promises of what salvation means. Sometimes people present Jesus to somebody. Come to Jesus. And all of your questions will be answered and all of your pain will be dealt with and you won't have to deal with anything like that again. And we desperately want it to mean that we'll be free from struggle or pain, don't we? We desperately want to be delivered from those things. And we do want it to mean that we will enjoy prosperity the way the world understands it. And there are those who promise it will. Folks, we want our bank accounts to be full. We don't want any late notices. We want to enjoy the good life. And sometimes we think that coming to Jesus and having enough faith means I can pray and my Mitsubishi will miraculously be changed into a Mercedes-Benz. Folks, what we want is the myth of happily ever after right now. No more troubles. No more tears. No more pain. No more illness. No more separation. And those things happen. Not yet. But when Christ returns, and we do this service until He returns, we are left with a world broken that we live in and sometimes suffer. John MacArthur wrote that many people today are open to a Jesus who they think will give them wealth, health, success, happiness, and the other things they want. Like the multitude at the triumphal entry, they loudly acclaim Jesus as long as they believe He will satisfy their selfish desires. But like the same multitude a few days later, they will reject and denounce Him when He does not deliver as they expected. When His Word confronts them with their sin and their need of a Savior, they will curse Him and turn away. Folks, we must not let our mistaken understandings of salvation, we must not let them take root in our lives. We just can't. Because these mistakes ultimately will cause us battles without we need not face. I still remember the day a young man who was a member of one of the churches I served in Paris, uh, excuse me, in Texas, came to me and said, and I was no longer his pastor, I was no longer at that church in Bowie County, Texas. He came to me and he was very upset. And he sat down and said, Brother Danny, why have people lied to me? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, people have told me that if I trust in Jesus, I won't have any more problems. I said, now wait a minute. You never heard me say that. But that's what we want. But when we understand what Jesus really is talking about by salvation, when we really understand it, then we can have hope. Even when the world is falling apart, we have hope. Because in Christ, salvation is ours. So, When we cry Hosanna to Christ, it focuses on one major truth. 
When I cry out, Jesus, save me. When I cry out, when we cry out, save us, Lord, please. Get us through this battle. Get us through this time. There's one major truth revealed in this service we're about to conduct. The truth is, He came to die so that we could walk within a covenant with God. That's what this was all about. That's why He came. Where He was born a virgin, why He lived 30 years, never sinning, even though tempted. Why he lived a life of ministry for three years, touching people and drawing them to him. I love the Gospel of John. Because frequently it refers to the miracles of Christ as signs. Signs of what? The kingdom of God is coming. The Savior is coming. The the kingdom of God is near you. It's here. And all of these signs point to this truth. His death is the cost of our being lost in sin. That's why he said, this is my body. This is the blood of the covenant. His sacrifice seen in these elements every single time we take the Lord's Supper. These elements are telling us, this is the way the power of sin will be broken in your lives now. I know... Folks, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. But we can't, as Flip Wilson used to say, we can't say the devil made me do it. Because when I am tempted and I fall, I make a choice. God has promised the devil cannot run roughshod over us. God will always make a way to escape the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, we just don't look for the exit sign. And one day, because of what happened on that cross and in the empty tomb, one day we will finally be delivered from the very presence of sin. Not only the power, but the presence. And that will truly be a day when there are no more tears of sorrow. It will truly be a day of complete and total wholeness as we stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is all about what it cost. For you and me to actually be able and call God Father. I couldn't have known God. I couldn't have imagined God. I couldn't have changed my life. If God hadn't stooped down and say, here, I want you to know me. And I want you to be part of my family. And I've done everything necessary for that to happen. Receive the salvation that can be yours in Jesus Christ. And the moment I became a child of God, from that moment to this and what will be the rest of my life, I understand. I could never have accomplished this on my own. It was only through Christ. 
and the price He was willing to pay. On that cross, when He cries out, It is finished. It can also be translated paid in full. My grandchildren and I have a game that we play, whether I want to play it or not. And many of you will recognize this game immediately. It's the I Love You More game. You guys know that? I love you. I love you too. I love you more. My stock answer is nope. And their stop answer, stock answer is yep. I said it's impossible. No, it's possible. No, I loved you before you were born. I've loved you from the time I found out you were coming. You can't love me more. Yep, I love you more. No, no, no. And we play it every time we talk together, every time I get a text from Ginger. I know it's the I love you more game. The first time I saw this, it was, it was just so precious, and now it's almost become trite, but please hear the truth. I asked Jesus how much you love me, and he said this much, and stretched out his hands and died. That's what this table is about, to remind us of who we are as children of the living God is possible only because the Christ came to save us. Now we come to a moment in time in accordance with the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Corinthians, it is time for us to examine ourselves. Paul tells the church at Corinth, you need to look at yourselves and see that you're going to take this supper in a worthy manner. It's not talking about sinlessly perfect. Folks, if only sinlessly perfect could exert the Lord's Supper, no one on earth could ever exert it. There's only been one who has been sinlessly perfect, and that is the Savior who came to give His life for us. But it is an examination to, for us to look at our hearts and see, do I have the right heart and attitude toward my Christ? who gave himself for me? Do I have the heart that says, I want to follow you, Lord? I want to be the person you created me and redeemed me to be? And, in the context of Corinthians, do I have the right attitude towards you, my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do I perceive that you are the body of Christ along with me? We are found to take this worthily. When we seem to walk in communion, not only with Christ, but also with the other followers. So if you harbor anger or unforgiveness in your heart against a fellow member of the body of Christ, now is the time to seek cleansing from your Lord. Now is the time to ask Him, God, give me the strength both to forgive and reach out. Father, God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, help me learn what it means to serve my brothers and sisters in the kingdom.